As we start our study of the book of Hosea and going through these prophets, the, the, these prophets are known as the Twelve or the Book of the Twelve Prophets. Not in modern times, but in ancient times, both Jews and Christians usually referred to these twelve books from Hosea to Malachi. There are twelve. They would refer to them as the Book of the Twelve or the Twelve Prophets. And then around A.D. 300-400, popularized by Augustine, Augustine called them the Minor Prophets. Now, when he dubbed these prophets, Hosea to Malachi, minor prophets, he did not mean minor in significance. He did not mean minor in importance or minor in inspiration or anything like that. What he meant by minor was short, small. In fact, others in the past have called this the book of the smaller prophets, Smaller, smaller in content. They're, they are short books compared to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and, is, and for that matter, Daniel, they are known as the major prophets. The major prophets, not because they are more important, but because their books are lengthy compared to these prophets here. So major prophets for Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, minor from Hosea to Malachi. Further, a word on Nomenclature. These prophets from Isaiah to Malachi are known as the latter prophets. L-A-T-T-E-R. Latter prophets. And then the books preceding them, especially from Genesis to Second Kings, those books are known as the former prophets. The former prophets and then the latter prophets. And that de- designation is not completely without biblical warrant because in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah actually does refer to his predecessors as former prophets. In Zechariah seven twelve, And they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. In this case, Zechariah, in Zechariah 7.12, he is not necessarily referring to the same group of prophets that we call former prophets or the Jews call former prophets, but he does make a distinction between those who preceded him and then his contemporaries. So in that sense, if we may use that sense of the terms, the former prophets, anything before Isaiah, And then from Isaiah to Malachi, these are known as the latter prophets. Now, back to the designation, the book of the twelve. If each of these prophets is writing his own book, why do we call it the book of the twelve? We call it the book because since they were short, since they were small, likely the Jews considered it important to keep them together lest they be lost, lest they, because of their size, um, be misplaced and lost. So they compiled the short ones, the minor ones like this, and put them in one book so that its length, the the length of this book, is similar to one of the major prophets. So that the size of the book, the size of the scroll or the codex, would be similar to the others and therefore 
not easily misplaced or easily lost. Therefore, they were compiled into one book, and therefore sometimes the book of the Twelve Prophets is what we designate for these prophets. Okay, then another question arises. Is there any order, any sense, any logic to why Hosea is first and Malachi is last? Hosea is first and Malachi last. Well, when we get to the last few, there is an obvious chronological order to them. When we get to the last few, beginning from the prophet Habakkuk, without dispute, Habakkuk and Zephaniah were prophets during the time of the threat of the Judean exile. That would be about 600 BC, to use a round figure, about the time of the threat of the Judean exile, the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. Then, and that would have been under the time of, in the time of the Babylonians. Then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, especially Haggai and Zechariah, and then according to the contents, Malachi, but Haggai and Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 1 of their prophecies, they date their prophecies during the time of the Persian Empire, which would be during the time of the restoration of the tribe or nation of Judah. Restoration to their land, to their temple, to their city, Jerusalem. Not restoration to a full kingdom, but restoration to be able to live in their homeland as they did before. The Persians permitted them to do so. The Persian period is after the Babylonian period. The Persian period began in 539 BC and went to 332 BC. The Babylonians, they started in terms of their conquest, 605 BC, uh, conquest of Judah, to 539 BC, or 540 BC, 539 technically. Um, That would be the Babylonian kingdom. Then the transfer to the Persian kingdom from Habakkuk to Malachi. So that leaves us with Hosea to Nahum. Hosea to Nahum. And in this case, these are in terms of the Judean exile, they are pre-exilic prophets pre-exilic, before the time of the Judean exile. Sometimes these prophets are known as pre-exilic prophets, Hosea to Nahum. Just as Habakkuk and Zephaniah are known as exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, post-exilic prophets. Included in the pre-exilic prophets are not only Hosea to Nahum, but also Isaiah. Then Included in the exilic prophets period would be Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. All of this in reference to the Judean exile, not the northern kingdom, Israel's exile, but the Judean exile. That is the turning point, major turning point in the history of the people. Well, then when we come back to Hosea to Nahum, there is a bit of a disagreement as to whether Hosea to Nahum is also in chronological order or whether there is some other logic behind keeping these prophets in this order. 
I would tend to think that generally speaking, if not absolutely speaking, generally at least, there is chronological order to them. I think especially when we speak of Jonah, and Micah, and Nahum, a chronological order to them, which would be about 800 B.C. to about 650 B.C. for Hosea to Nahum. All right. Now, Hosea itself, the book itself, chapters 1 to 3 portray Hosea and his family in terms that relate to God and Israel. That is, Hosea's marriage and his children are symbols and signs to compare what experience they had in their life with what God had in his in relation to the people of Israel, the nation. So mostly in terms of a marriage metaphor, that's what we have in chapters 1 to 3. And then an expansion on the conflict that God has with his own people called by his name proceeds from verses or chapters 4 to 14. Chapters 4 to 14 are various indictments, judgments, and prophecies of restoration and redemption. That's what we have from 4 to 14. Not that chapters 1 to 3 does not include any of this. That is, indictments on their sins, judgments against their sins, and then blessings of redemption. But the marriage metaphor is what is emphasized in the first three chapters. All right, then in... Chapter 1, verse 1, Hosea 1, 1, it says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. The prophet Hosea dates his oracles to these four Judean kings and then the one king of Israel, Jeroboam, son of Joash. If we take the historical account of, of these kings, we would need to read 2 Kings 14 to 20. 2 Kings chapters 14 to 20 are the historical background to what Hosea's prophecies are preaching about. 2 Kings 14 to 20. Those chapters include the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and also Jeroboam, son of Joash. Um, in the, the sequence of kings, we have two or two and a half good kings. That is, Uzziah and Hezekiah are generally good kings. But Jotham, uh, somewhat. But Ahaz was an evil king of Judah. In the case of Jeroboam, son of Joash, he was an evil king. He's also known by historians as Jeroboam II. Because Jeroboam, son of Nabat, he was the first king of the northern kingdom, Israel. We can read about this starting in 1 Kings chapter 11, 11 and 12, where Jeroboam is mentioned and becomes the first king of the northern tribes, the ten tribes. Well, Hosea's prophecies, if he's dating them this way between Uzziah and Hezekiah, it's likely that he 
is prophesying over a period of about 60 years. Yeah, prophesying over a period of 60 years. That's a long time to prophesy, but it's not unusual because there are other prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah whose prophecies also spanned a long time. Perhaps even Daniel the prophet spanned a long time. So Hosea, in these 14 chapters, he doesn't date every single oracle, but he does, he does um, give a time frame of about 60 years from Uzziah onward. All right, now let's go into verses 2 to 11. Let's read it first. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. It will be said to them, You are sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. There is a question as to what God is commanding here. It seems that the plain understanding of what he's saying is, go marry a harlotrous wife. Go marry a woman who will be, who will practice harlotry or prostitution, and you will have children, and these children also will prostitute themselves just like their mother does. They will be idolatrous and unfaithful children just like the mother is idolatrous and unfaithful. We do know that he's meaning idolatry as a way or as the specific sin, but the metaphor for idolatry is following idols, worshiping idols. For example, 
in verse chapter two, uh, chapter two, verse thirteen. He says, "I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me." Declares the Lord. Israel follows her lovers. And the lovers are the idols, the Baals, and she offers sacrifices to them. That's in chapter 2, verse 13. This is what he means here, that this woman that he marries is a symbol of the spiritual harlotry of the people. Also, 2, verse 5, talks about lovers. For their mother has played the harlot, she who conceived them as acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lover. Yes, chapter 2, verse 5 says the same. Well, in this case, it presents a dilemma to some. Is it possible for God to ask or command Hosea to marry a woman whom he knows will practice prostitution. Was she already a prostitute or was she going to be a prostitute? In either case, we know that she was going to be a prostitute because we'll read about that in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we'll read more about her going away. But it is possible to understand this wife that he is to marry as already being a prostitute. That God was telling Hosea to marry a harlot or a prostitute. Now, how can we justify that interpretation? Um, Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3, 1 to 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me before many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's telling Hosea, Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. So he's telling Hosea to go and take her again, even though she is an adulteress. She is an adulteress, but take her again. Well, how about the spiritual connection? Was Israel adulteress or harlotress before God married the nation of Israel. Were they already unfaithful when God married them? The answer is yes. And we find this answer in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Joshua 24, 1 and 2. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. 
And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. That means that Terah, Abraham, and Nahor served other gods before Abraham was converted by God. But the nation, how about the whole nation of Israel? Did they also worship idols before God delivered them by the hand of Moses? Joshua 24, 14. 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He reminds the people, Joshua does, that when they were in Egypt, they served other gods. They worshipped other gods. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20, verses 1 to 8. Ezekiel will remind them of this fact also, that they worshipped idols in Egypt when God sent Moses to deliver them. Ezekiel 20, 1 to 8. Now, it came about in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. God was ready to punish them because they would not repent. And they did not repent even after they left Egypt. All right, so he is to marry this harlotress or prostituting wife. And the comparison he makes in verse 2 Hosea 1, 2, he says, For, because the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Thereby we see the symbolism, the comparison between Hosea, his wife, and God, and his wife, the nation Israel. Well, Hosea, after receiving such a command, which is really a loathsome thought to think that God would command him to do so. But he did. He knew it was the word of the Lord and he obeyed it. It says in verse three, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
He took this woman named Gomer. Her father's name is mentioned here. We don't have any more evidence of who this Gomer and who this Diblaim were. But she is a unique person in that she's not the same as the, the patriarch and the nation in the book of Genesis chapter 10. A nation did come from uh, a one Gomer, but one of the sons of, of Noah had this uh, son named Gomer. And a nation came from them, peoples came from them, tribes came from them, but this is a personal name in this case. So then, she bears a son. That's the first one between Hosea and Gomer. Verse 4, the interpretation. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 4 The son's name is Jezreel. Jezreel is also a valley in the northern kingdom. It was a fertile valley in the northern kingdom. The name itself, it's not interpreted here, but in Hebrew, the name means God sows. God sows or God scatters. God sows or God scatters. In verse 4, it means God sows punishment. It means God sows punishment because he explains himself. He says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That means the northern kingdom is punished, going to be punished, and Jehu, a wicked king, will also be punished. In 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, there we read of how God raised up Jehu, and was pleased to use this wicked Jehu to obliterate the dynasty of Ahab, even to kill Jezebel, Ahab's wife, and then to massacre, execute all the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal in the house of Baal. You may remember that. After he did so, he made the house of Baal, the temple of Baal, into a latrine into a public restroom. That's what he did. Jehu did that. However, Jehu continued to worship idols and he followed the sins or the idols of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jehu did God's will, but Jehu was an evil man. So because he was an evil man with evil motives and he didn't do things to please the Lord, to glorify him as one redeemed and saved, by believing in the gospel. He did not believe it. So God raised up an evil man to punish other evil men. And now God's saying in verse four, it's time to punish Jehu and his dynasty. That should not surprise us. Remember we saw with the major empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that They were all evil empires and God raised them up to do his will and they did it knowingly and unknowingly. They did his will. Then after they did his will, he punished them. 
And that's the same here in verse four. Uh, Verse five, and it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. In this valley, like I said, it's a fertile valley. It's a place where there's uh, much crops and uh, harvesting, but God's going to break Israel there. He's going to send foreigners there to overtake them, to destroy them. And their power, their ability to withstand the enemy will be broken. And God's going to do it by means of a foreign enemy, specifically the Assyrians. Verse 6, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I should ever forgive them. Lo-Ruhamah, Lo means no, and Ruhamah means compassion or mercy. The name of this daughter is no compassion or no mercy. What a name, no mercy. Typically, people give favorable names to their children, son or daughter. Occasionally, there might be a negative name or negative sounding name, but usually people give favorable names to their sons and daughters. In this case, though, God commanded them, Hosea specifically, to name her no compassion. Why? Because God has no longer any compassion on the house of Israel. He's never going to forgive them. Never. Which means there is a limit to God's compassion, a limit to his patience. Not that he is limited in resources, but he is limiting his patience with them because they refuse to repent. That's what he means that he's never, ever going to forgive them. Though he's not going to forgive Israel, he says in verse 7, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Verse 7, when he's saying that he will deliver them by the Lord their God, he is speaking not necessarily of physical Judah, but making a contrast to a nation that does have a remnant of believers, and he's going to be compassionate on them, but he's not going to deliver them or grant compassion by physical means, bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. He's not going to use physical means to do so. He's going to use a spiritual means, which he mentions in verse 7, by the Lord their God. Now, we have a curious phrase. God is speaking in the first person in verse 7, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them. I will have compassion, I will deliver them. But then we have a third person reference. By the Lord their God. He did not say, and deliver them by me, or by myself. He didn't say it that way. He said, by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by physical means. There are a couple of explanations for this. Um, One explanation is that God is drawing attention 
to who he is. Instead of just saying, by me, he's drawing attention to who he is, the Lord their God. The second interpretation is that we have one or or two persons of the Trinity mentioned in verse 7. One person is speaking and making reference to another person in the Trinity, by the Lord their God, in that they are working together to accomplish this redemption for Judah. It's not unusual in the Old Testament for us to have references like this. It's not unusual to have in one verse references to two or three persons of the Trinity. Let's see in Genesis. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Genesis 19, 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. Who are these lords here? There's two mentioned. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. We have likely... Christ, before his incarnation, appearing to Lot and with the two angels with him. And then he proceeds to investigate and confirm the sin of Sodom. Then he calls upon the Lord in heaven to mete out the punishment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. One of those lords was right there near Sodom and the other lord was in heaven. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Here we'll see all three persons of the Trinity in one verse. Isaiah 42, 2. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Continuing through verse 4, this passage is cited in Matthew 12, 18 to 21. Matthew 12, 18 to 21 as referring to Christ. And in verse 1, the The Father is speaking and he says, I have put my spirit upon him, upon Christ. I, the Father, have put my spirit upon Christ. Uh, Second example, Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. Verse 12, Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Who's speaking? God is, right? No doubt. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. 
from the time it took place, I was there. Is God speaking still? Yes. But then look at 16 at the end. And now, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The the M of me in your Bible is likely a capital M for me. And that's because the translators believe it's a reference to Christ. The me is Christ. All right, so a couple of examples or three examples of how it's possible to have more than one person of the Trinity referenced in a single verse or sentence in the Old Testament. And that's likely what is happening in Hosea 1, 7. Now, verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Lo-Ami. Lo means no. Ami means my people. Am means people, and the ending with the I pronounced as a double E. Ami means my. Not my people. God disowns the unrepentant sinners. Specifically, the unrepentant sinners. He's not rejecting everyone Only the unrepentant sinners. You are not my people, and I am not your God. They used to be called his people, but once judgment is inflicted on them, firstly announced, he declares, you're not my people, so you will be punished. Up to verse 9, we have judgment mostly, except verse 7. But then in 10 and 11, we have restoration, redemption, salvation. Let's see what's in verses 10 and 11. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Though he's predicting massive destruction, he still says in verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. How is it possible if they are so punished and destroyed and devastated that they will be innumerable like the sand of the sea? Does this not remind us of what God said in the promises to Abraham? In Genesis chapters 12 and 15, He made promises like this. And in 22.17, he says, like the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. So, in Genesis 12, when he said so, and in Genesis 22, when he said so, who did he have in mind who would be descendants of Abraham? He had the Gentiles in mind. Because he said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what God promised. And therefore, he's using this designation, the sons of Israel, to refer to saved Jews and saved Gentiles. 
In the Old Testament already, we have an example of saved Jews and saved Gentiles called sons of Israel. Keep your place here and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56. Isaiah preaches the same message. Let's begin reading at verse 3. Isaiah 56, 3, 3 to 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples or all the nations. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Foreigners are explicitly mentioned in verses 3 and 6, and as a group, all the peoples, verse 7. They will worship the Lord, and They are going to be gathered to the ones already gathered, according to verse 8. The ones already gathered are the faithful, the converted in the nation of Israel, physical nation. And the others who will be gathered to them are Gentiles, the peoples of the earth, to them. And then when this happens, these foreigners will have a name better than sons of daughters and better than sons of and daughters, that is, the natural sons and daughters, the original sons and daughters. Remember, let my son go that he may serve me. God said of Israel when Moses confronted Pharaoh, let my son serve me, my firstborn son serve me. So God adopted them at that time, but they didn't live up to the name, so then God disowned them and said, you have this name, sons and daughters, but away with you, and then I'm going to adopt others into my family, and they're going to have a better name than the natural sons and daughters, because they will glorify me, whereas my natural ones, my physical ones, never did glorify me. In Galatians 6.16, the apostle called us the Israel of God. And in Galatians, he meant believing Jews and believing Gentiles in one body in Christ, he called all of us in one body the Israel of God. That's what Hosea means here. Then specifically, we see him expand and clarify in Hosea 1.10, where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Where is it currently in Hosea's time said, you are not my people? 
the rest of the nations. But God's saying here, it will be said to them, the rest of the nations, you are the sons of the living God. They're not called that now, but they will be called that. He does mean the Gentiles. He doesn't mean um, anything else by that. We have a confirmation of this interpretation in two places. The first one is Romans 9. Romans 9, 25 and 26. Romans 9, 25. As he says also in Hosea, that's our prophet, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And why does the apostle quote Hosea and then Isaiah after this? Because he just made the statement in verse 24 that God is choosing whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Then to prove that God is saving Gentiles by election, he quotes Hosea in verses 25 to 26, and then Isaiah in 27 to 29, to prove this point. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In verse 10, Peter is quoting two parts of Hosea, our chapter. You were not a people, you are now a people, the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter also means to include Jews and Gentiles by this quotation. Lastly, we have Hosea 1.11. Hosea 1.11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Israel and Judah will be gathered together as one nation. They will have one leader, it says. Who is this leader? Chapter 3, verse 5, he's called David. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. David their king. This does not mean King David because King David has been dead over a hundred years, about a hundred and thirty years or fifty years before Hosea. He doesn't mean King David, the son of Jesse. He means Messiah or Christ, whose name is also David. 
That is the one leader that will be over them. And the blessing, verse 11, they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. What happens in the valley during the time of the harvest? You have rejoicing, right? You have lots of food. And then you can go up to the mountains to wherever you might live or wherever, if purchases are made in the valley during the time of harvest, the people gather their food in carts, in bags, and take them away, take them to their houses, rejoicing. You see an irony here or a reversal? In the first few verses, God said, name him Jezreel because of punishment. God will sow punishment. But in verse 11 or 10 and 11, God's now sowing blessing. So who's the sower, the master sower, the master farmer, scatterer? God. He sows punishment and he sows blessing. He does it. It happens ultimately because of him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.